Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth. This is the full-length version of the Emmy-winning film about racism in America. For some basic understanding and context, the first person you will hear is a white male, me, Loki Mulholland. The second person is Luvon Brown, a black man who was a freedom writer and civil rights activist. And now it is time to get uncomfortable. So a few years ago, there was this, this friend of mine and, you know, like Facebook, right, friend. And he makes this post and uh, this image pops up and it's him holding this black licorice gummy bear. And he's like, yeah, right. You know, I found it. I can't believe it. You know, a black licorice gummy bear. It's just like the other ones, except for it jumps higher. Um, I write, wow, really? And he says, what, Loki? It's not racist. It's a positive stereotype. Now, before I could tell him there's no such thing as a positive stereotype, one of his buddies jumps in and says, yeah, and the yellow ones are better at math. That, that becomes a cue for all of his friends, his like-minded friends, to, to just to pile on. It just gets worse and just starts going downhill. And that's when uh, I realized, I'm like, wow, these, these guys are racist and they don't even know it. And you know, that's why I'm making this film. Because doing nothing's not an option. But really, it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. I don't know if I could have done what my mother did. I don't know if I would have joined the freedom rides or sat at the lunch counters. But I also know that because of her, I don't have to. And yet my family's darker legacy compels me to speak publicly about my family's and our nation's past, to try and help right the wrongs we all face today. Before the war, our family had over 100 slaves. And when it ended, they were all told that they were free to go. But if they stayed, they'd be paid. Now, if they left, they could never come back. And of those 100 slaves, only one left. Because that's how well we treated our slaves. They were like family. My grandmother loved to tell me this story. And I loved hearing it. I, I, I took pride in it. And it was such an ingrained part of our family's history that even my mother shared it with Ebony Magazine. And they led a six-page article with part of that story about my mother in January of 63. And none of it was true. So there was actually uh, six slaves. And they all left but one, and her name was Aunt Mary. And my great-grandmother, Addie, Addie Chandler, she, uh, she would see him when she would visit her, her, great, her grandfather, um, Walton Harris, when she was a little girl. 
And yet, uh, somehow, over the years, this fact would become myth, and myth would become fact. And, and it's crazy because if you go to if you go to Oconee, Georgia, and you see how they lived, you knew for a fact that they they didn't have a hundred slaves. Um, and yet, somehow, despite all that, that still comes through in the in the family history. And uh, and I always I always wondered. Just, you know, how did that six become 100? And who was Aunt Mary? Why are they doing this? I'm not going to tell any stories on Joan. Joan was a model of uh, propriety, and uh, she, tried to keep us, she tried to keep us out of trouble, and she didn't like causing trouble in the state of Mississippi. And, uh, we didn't I've listen. only been here two days, and that, that doesn't sound that, true. Right? <laughs> She's a proper Southern Joan woman. Was, so I first met Luvon um, during the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides when we were in Jackson, Mississippi. I think it was the Smith Robertson Museum, and and uh, later I would interview him for a documentary about my mother's life in the Civil Rights Movement. And he, before the camera crew showed up, him and I were talking, and he says something that really jumped out at me. He says, "You know, everyone knows what the drugs are, but you'll never see a SWAT team raid a university, but you'll always find them in the hood. So why is that?" And honestly, I, I really didn't know. I, mean, I just hope he didn't know that. I started uh, get, reading everything I'd get my hands on. And it wasn't like I didn't know anything at all. I mean, growing up with my mother, you, you had to know something. But uh, to the depth of what he was talking about, that was, that was new territory for me. So again, I started reading everything I could. Um, the New Jim Crow, and the combination of blackness, uh, the, uh, when, when affirmative action was white, and the list just goes on and on. We had books like Coming of Age in Mississippi from uh, Ann Moody, and she actually wrote in the back, uh, to Loki, I know you have heard all this from your mother before, but you will read about our experiences in my book. Your mother and I had many great laughs together. Uh, we had uh, John Salter's book, Jackson, Mississippi, and, and then my mom starts sending me all these books. She's like, oh, this is what you're studying? Great. So I start getting things like uh, Inside the Ku Klux Klan, and and uh, the strange career of Jim Crow, and uh, gosh, what else we got? 100 years of lynchings, and of course, you know, Stokely Carmichael's Black Power. No, I had no, I had no reason to like white people. Uh, you know, I, if if you first of all, you, you're 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 not told anything about white people that's good. You know, my grandmother, I lived with my grandmother the first five years of my life, and she lived on land or housing that the white families had put up. And uh, so she saw that, and I lived with her for a while. And the way they treated people was just horrible. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's like you, you some of, sometimes you don't even have a name. You're like, my grandmother was Andy because, Aunt Annie because she was old. So it was Aunt something, you know, and, and, and uh, not even Aunt something, it was Andy. Then you became uncle. You didn't. You never had a freaking name, uh, and you knew you didn't have any any rights. You 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 couldn't do what you wanted. You you had to be careful what you said, um, and sometimes we didn't have enough to eat. And what we ate basically was my grandmother would make cornmeal bread, and we'd put that in water with sugar, and that would be dinner. Uh, and so I had no reason to like white people. To me, I, I kind of see it as a miracle that we even know each other. 
um, because our, our lives through American history took these two very different paths, very divergent paths. And, and yet at the, at the end of the day, they would intersect in the summer of 1961 and would be together ever since, despite what my family had done, but also because of it. We, we were coming back from a conference somewhere, probably in Memphis or Nashville. We're certainly not in Mississippi. Anymore. You weren't telling this. All right. And we made it to Jackson. <laughs> Alive. Alive. I'm going to get this story someday. And we got the kids to prove it. Yes. Well, yes, we do. She has hers, I have mine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you. No, I but what I would soon learn is my family helped create the world that would enslave and subjugate Luvans for generations, establishing a foundation of racism from which the political and economic engine of our nation would be built. And while the structures created on top continue to be dismantled, the foundation remains. Well, the, the foundation of our country. Well, first of all, we, we had to wipe out all the red people. <laughs> I mean, it's, we have a very violent history and the solution has always been, we will kill as many people as we have to to establish the place for white people to be. If you look at the foundation of the country, if you look at what it became, if you look at the economic system it built, the social systems it set up, it was all about somebody's got to be on the bottom, and here's a convenient bunch of people to do it. This social order would be codified by a constitution that allowed slavery to continue in this new land of liberty and declare enslaved blacks as only three-fifths of a person. White supremacy was now the official policy of the United States of America. And this mentality would become truly ingrained in our nation's psyche. From 1789 to 1850, 80% of our presidents owned slaves, eight while serving as president. 18 of the first 31 Supreme Court justices also owned people, and the interests they looked out for and the policies they ruled on would have a lasting impact. So I want to show you something here as well. So since our first Continental Congress in 1774 until today, over 12,000 people have served in Congress. And over that 240 plus year period, uh, only 3% have been women or people of color. And of that 3%, a third are serving right now. So the other 97% have been white men, because remember, Women, at least white women, couldn't vote until 1920, and African-Americans, all African-Americans, couldn't vote until 1965. Now, there was this short period of time during Reconstruction when black men could actually vote and even hold office. As a matter of fact, the uh, first one to do so was Hiram Rhodes Revel of Mississippi. He was a U.S. senator in, in 1870. That's shocking to a lot of people I know because, you know, it only took Mississippi 148 years to get around to ratifying the 13th Amendment in 2013. That's the, uh, that's the one that freed the slaves, by the way. So a lot of things that are set up to make sure that people fail. Now, people argue, well, there's nobody sat down and thought this out. Well, you're wrong. Because the influences of policy were the same people like uh, uh, Mitch McConnell and those people who come from a thing that says, you know, blacks, we don't want them to get too far. So they don't have to think about it. That's just how they're going to function. And it's not, just, it's not just the folks from the South. I mean, Pennsylvania, now, sometimes I'd rather be in Alabama than Pennsylvania. Let's stop kidding ourselves. So even though people didn't sit down and say it, sitting in the room was the philosophy that says we have to take care of our own. 
and that does not include black people. So you, don't, you didn't have to sit there and say, there doesn't have to be a grand conspiracy against black people. It's already built in. It's already built in. We have this weird thing with history. We have this, this, this we, we like to see it as episodic, right? We, we, we tend to see it as if it's happening in a vacuum, right? Things just happen and then they just disappear, but history's not like that, okay? Um, it's fluid, it flows, it, it, it weaves in and out and we're, we're all downstream of the past, right? Um, even if we suffer from what I like to call the I never owned any slave syndrome, right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's the type of thing where, you know, where we compartmentalize history and then say it has, it has nothing to do with us, right? It kind of goes like this. It's slavery happened, Dr. King had a speech, and Obama's been elected president twice, right? We've arrived, all right? Hallelujah, guys. We're, we are a post-racial, colorblind society. But isn't it interesting that when you take color out of it, Everything's still black and white. Sometimes you don't have to do anything. You just kind of ignore what's being done. Guy shows up with a gun where the president's speaking, and you allow that to happen. Why? Why is that okay? So, you know, people talk to me a lot about how things are different, and things are. I mean, I'm not an alarmist that says nothing's different. But when you allow that to happen, that should be a message to people that says somehow people still think that if there's a black person in ascendancy, like the president, that's not a good thing. That means these niggas that we thought we had under control are now in our White House. Take back the White House has nothing to do with a change in government. It's called let's get this nigga out. That's what that's about. It has nothing to do with anything else. Why isn't the country up in arms that black folks are suddenly, they've been getting shot for a long time, by the way. But publicly, now we, we videotape this. Not every shooting is unjustified, don't get me wrong. But when people are filming that this is happening, why haven't we heard from all these folks saying, you know, this is wrong. If you think racism is gone in America and you see this happen, then you ought to be the first one on the line that says, wait a minute, it's not gone. We made a mistake. So this is my, my family history in, in Georgia. So just uh, make sure you understand it's Georgia. So this is me, uh, I was born in 1972. And then my mom, that's, that's her there with the help. And then my grandmother here who was born in 1908. And we know the exact date because uh, it was written in the family Bible. And it says uh, June 31st, 1908. Uh, think about it. So my grandmother had six siblings. There was Reba, she believed everything was the devil's work. And we'll talk about her later, but for now, uh, her husband died while he was trying to escape a chain gang. Icy, uh, she was 14 when she got married and her husband ended up killing uh, their son and he got off. And then there was, uh, there was John Leo, and Norman and Oki Lee and LB here, he, he thought he killed a guy in a bar fight. And so he fled the state. He would die in, in 1940, and my great-grandmother, Addie, sent a telegram to my grandmother telling her that her brother had died. We went from them, and you get to Addie Chandler, and she's the one who would visit her grandfather, Walton, and see uh, the, the former slave, Aunt Mary. She was married to 
a little Barry Gaines Chandler, and she kicked him out of the house, and he fled the state. Um, and then if you go up from that, you get my fourth great-grandfather, Dudley Jones Chandler, who had nine sons who all served in the Civil War, and three would die in the war, including the husband of my great-great-great-grandmother, Mary Jane Hicks. And if you keep going back from that, about 11 more generations, you get the Jamestown in 1610. And John Chandler, who came on the Hercules as a nine-year-old indentured servant and would uh, go on to own two plantations, serve in the House of Burgess. And so, I mean, we helped start the whole thing. 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World as slaves. Some two million died en route. Upwards of 450,000 ended up in the U.S. But by 1793, slavery was in decline until a single invention, the cotton gin, led to an explosion in forced labor as more land was stolen from American Indians and cotton fields planted. By 1810, cotton exports went from a mere 500,000 pounds to 93 million, while slavery would grow 70% to 1.2 million, eventually reaching almost 4 million enslaved blacks by 1860. I've read a lot about that period, but I just recently read a book about kind of the economics of it and, and how it worked and how many people made money. And some of the, the wealthy families now who got their start during slavery. Now, that's not talked about. But if you think about it, if you have a family who, who made their money, who came to where they came to be, dealing in human misery, or you came from that, that's your background. You know, my great-grandfather was a slave. So I can be ashamed of that. Or I can say, wow, I'm here, and my great-grandfather, not too far back, was a slave. Uh, many people, and I think that's part of why we haven't had a dialogue among black people about slavery, is they're ashamed of that. I am not, because it had nothing to do with my great-grandfather, and everything to do with how much could he contribute to the pockets of the southerner who was growing the cotton, the northerner who was shipping the stuff over to England, or the English who were making money making materials out of the cotton. That kind of thing has been set up and it still operates. And that's why they walked away, the north walked away during Reconstruction. That's why a lot of the deals got made with the southerners during the Civil Rights Movement. And that's why you weren't able to make progress because they, they are locked in and have been for years. This is the slave ledger of, uh, of our family, of, uh, of my fourth great-grandfather, Dudley Jones Chandler. On our trip to, to Georgia, we went to go visit the home of Dudley Jones Chandler to see where those slaves would have been. So this is the place where Dudley Chandler lived, and the house burned about four months ago. This is what's left. Somewhere out here is where 
nine slaves would have lived. I wish I'd been able to see the house, but it's gone. The Confederate flag is down. It, I guess it all represents the end of an era. At least I hope so. And this is all that's left of the home. It had uh, burned to the ground about three months before we got there, which I think seems a little poetic. Uh, but that's what remains of that legacy. I could never understand why the number of slaves increased in America when they stopped bringing them across. I says, how could that be? Well, basically, they were breeding slaves. So in the East or in, you know, the South, they would have, they, people would basically be growing slaves so they could send them to the tobacco fields or to the cotton fields or to the, the sugarcane fields. You know, I never understood fully what it meant that, you know, slaves were property until I started finding these documents um, about my family. And this was uh, from the, uh, an abstract from the Grantville County, North Carolina D books. And in it is, is David Chandler and he's deeding people to other people. Uh, to his daughter, one Negro woman named Aggie and her two children, Anne and Elidor. Uh, to David and Phoebe, one Negro named Rachel. Uh, it goes on, a woman named Whitney and two children. Um, a woman by the name of Huda, one Negro girl by the name of Harriet. And to Thomas Chandler, one girl by the name of Ritter, one boy by the name of Spotwood, one bed and one furniture as well. Uh, in all, there was, I think, about 23 people that he gave away to his family members. And an interesting one as well was, was one that he gave to John Chandler, his son. It says, one Negro girl by the name of Mary Ann, together with all her future increase, which tells me that she might have been pregnant at the time, um, but he was, you know, you, you, you hear that and it, it puts it in perspective that that's what my family did. I mean, it was human trafficking. Something has to happen in your mind for you to look at a person or child and say, well, that's gonna be sold to Mr. So-and-so and you never look at them as human. And that's what this country is built on. The Indians were treated that way. They were in the way, so we gotta kill them and move them. We gotta march them across the country, give them some diseases, kill off a few that way. And none of that necessarily was intent. The intent was, we want the land, there's gold on the land, there's oil on the land. Whatever there is, we want it, and we have a right to take it. Keep in mind, these are the same people, a lot of whom came over here, initially to escape persecution and not realizing that you're doing the same thing. So you gotta do something in your mind to treat people, humans, that way. 
So then you have the slaves. So we have to have the religious group declare them heathens. And as they're heathens, they're not human. So we could treat them any way we want. So that some of the biggest slave people were the Episcopalians, which was a church. Now, how does that happen? This was possible because the Constitution had allowed it. And time and time again, the Supreme Court ruled that slaves were not people, but property. In 1857, that right of property would be challenged in what would come to be known as the Dred Scott case. Robert Taney, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and a former slave owner himself proclaimed that it was not only the opinion of the court, but of the founding fathers and the writers of the Declaration of Independence that blacks were of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race. That blacks had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. The following year, during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Abraham Lincoln declared that there must be the position of superior and inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Lincoln would go on to free millions of people and pay for it with his life, but his words would echo for years to come. So when Sherman marches troops through the South, through Georgia, it was to humiliate the South. He wanted this to be a war that they would never forget. And they never did. Um, my great, great, great grandmother, Mary Jane Hicks, lost her husband to the war and was so destitute that she had to boil dirt just to survive, to feed her seven children. We went back to Georgia and to the Commerce Nicholson area um, in search of some of these tombstones in the hopes of, you know, not just finding these family members, but finding the former slave known as uh, Aunt Mary and hopefully give her the identity that she deserved, that our family refused to give her, that 400 years of white supremacy had erased. She was a, a, a person that I just seemed to connect with. I don't know why. But um, it was interesting. We would go down these, dis, these different country roads and stuff, and, and Google Maps put, actually put us in a place. It's this, we're looking for this, this, this cemetery, and Google Maps ends up putting us in this guy's driveway at his house. And, and clearly, we're, we don't belong there. And this, this old guy comes out, and he's just in his jeans and no T-shirt or anything, and, you know, kind of a big gut. You know, what do we need? And I told him, well, we're looking for this uh, cemetery. And he goes, oh, well, yeah, you just go out yonder and over the stream and there's gonna be a tree hanging out over the road. It looks like it's falling in and you just turn right there and that's, that's where you're gonna find it. So uh, we went yonder and we, we found that, but it was just going up this, this road. But it was the tombstone of my fourth great-grandfather, Dudley Jones Chandler, the, the one who owned nine slaves, but there was still no, no sign of the former slave, Aunt Mary. We did eventually find my great-great-great-grandmother, Mary Jane Hicks, and uh, ended up that her tombstone was in a different spot. Um, and it was without the cell phone reception, it became really hard to, to find, but we ended up scouring this cemetery, and, and there she was. 
it's 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 a sense that you know it's I don't know how to describe it. Um, she's that's the only connection I have to that now is the tombstone. But to me, it's just it's uh, it's very alive and very real. In my other life, I'm a filmmaker, and one of my more fascinating films I created is the award-winning film titled Black, White, and Us. It's about viewing racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Utah? Yeah, Utah. It just so happens to be the transracial adoption capital of the world. So what happens when white families who didn't believe racism existed anymore adopts a black child? Find it on Amazon Prime, or visit LokiMalholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. While the war between the states was officially over, slavery was not. And the 13th Amendment made sure of it. Slavery would continue as a punishment for crime enforced by appropriate legislation. Laws would be passed and upheld by a white majority Congress that wanted nothing more than to keep things just the way they were. And so they did. The position of superior and inferior that Lincoln spoke about would continue. In 1866, President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's vice president, and a former Tennessee slave owner unsuccessfully vetoed the first civil rights bill and warned Congress that, without the watchful eye of whites, blacks would relapse into barbarism. If allowed to vote, it would result in a tyranny such as this continent has never yet witnessed. This was said after a month of violence by whites upon blacks in Memphis, where 46 African Americans were killed, 91 houses, four churches, and 12 schools were burned to the ground while at least five women were raped. Part of what I think had to happen after Reconstruction, as brief as it was, and, and keep in mind that a lot of the things that happened during Reconstruction was to do the very thing that certainly Southern whites were afraid of, which is that black people have power, they have jobs, they have all of these things that they feel should only accrue to them. And the, 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 the mentality says that they have something that I don't so I must take it back. And here you have a bunch of people who have grown up believing that every black person is inferior to them and they have no business running anything or owning anything uh, and not doing what the, whatever the white person is says. So now here's the opportunity to take back, I mean that phrase about the White House, to take back their rights. And I believe I don't, didn't talk to any of them, but I think some of it had to do with, well, we have to be particularly brutal so that they know their place. So, you know, the raping, the killings, the lynchings, uh, the driving people out of their businesses, all of that was, was uh, designed to instill the fear that a lot that people had when they were slaves. It was kind of, let's go back to where we were. That's another phrase that always bothers me, is I wish for the old days. This was the the world my grandmother grew up in. I mean, it's what she inherited. As a sharecropper in the cotton fields of Georgia, uh, she was being taught by her family and by society what everyone had always been taught. That's white supremacy. Where the, 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 the myth is becoming a fact. Um, and if you end up telling a lie long enough, Eventually, you start to believe the lie to the point where you even forget what you're lying about. 
the redemption of the South was now in full force. The effects were immediate and devastating, as a new structure built on top of the foundation of racism would take hold. Blacks made up a major part of the population in almost every southern state, and whites feared black rule. In places like Louisiana, where nearly half of the citizens were African American, black voters dropped from 130,000 to 5,300. By 1910, there were only 730 registered black voters in the entire state. In nearly half of the state's 60 parishes, there was not a single black voter that was now registered. In 1912, Woodrow Wilson would become the first person from the South to win a presidential election since 1856. In 1913, with the encouragement of his Southern cabinet members, President Wilson would make the federal government a racially segregated workplace. So they've created this image of the black man as this savage who wants to rape and pillage, not realizing there's no more pillaging that goes on these days, but that's what they've, they've created. And if you think about it, there's something psychotic about that, where you've enslaved somebody, raped their children, killed the men, and yet you are afraid of them because they are going to do what? They're gonna rape your women and kill your children. You created that, and that's what you're afraid of. Did it ever occur to you that that's, that's, the, that's transference a little bit, I think, is a psychological term for that. You think I'm gonna do it because you did it. And that's what scares them about political power for black people. You know, it never occurs to them that the person may wanna solve some problems. And if they do try to solve problems in the black community, well, then they're just catering to the black people. So you can't win. You can't win. So this is Aunt Reba. And uh, I mentioned her earlier. You know, she's the one who, who believed everything was the devil's work, right? And you know, microwave ovens and TVs and women wearing pants, those sort of things. And she had witnessed the devil's work firsthand when the lynch mob that had Leo Frank went right past her front door. We, we actually took a trip. Uh, when we went back to Georgia, we, we went from where they took him out of the prison in Milledgeville and went back up to, to Marietta, Georgia, where, where they lynched him, because that's where he killed, or was accused of killing Mary Fagan. Um, and we went to the actual spot, but we couldn't find it. We kept on having to go back and forth. Just the marker wasn't there. What had happened was, is, is they took it down. There was this, uh, they were building this pit next to it, you know, some construction site for another Waffle House because, you know, Georgia needs another one. But uh, where Leo Frank was lynched is actually they're constructing an off-ramp, erasing that entire history, you know. Uh, so it's, it's just a sad testimony to, to the history of all this, of how they just constantly, you know, just want to get rid of it and let's move on. So the crazy thing about Leo Frank's lynching is they actually took photographs and turned them into postcards and would mail them out to their friends and so forth. And yet it would take 80 years for anyone to actually identify who was in the photos, you know, because they're all good and dead. But it should have been really obvious because you had a former governor, uh, state legislators, mayors, these pillars of society who lynched Leo Frank. And the Leo Frank lynching is very important because it, it's, it gave rise to two organizations. One was the Anti-Defamation League, and the other one was the, the Ku Klux Klan, right? Uh, one would give my mother their national award, and the other one would put her on their, uh, 
on their death list. And now the clan was reborn in a place called Stone Mountain. And imagine, take Mount Rushmore, combine it with Disney World, and give it this super racist history. And that's Stone Mountain. So I, I, I wanted to get I wanted to get something out of Stone Mountain. Take back with me, and and I mean the the place we go into the store, and it's just everything is just you know Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and these sort of things. And so I I found a uh, Christmas tree ornament, right? Because uh, nothing says Christmas and the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ than than the defenders of slavery. I mean, this is how bizarre the place is. And, and of course, the thing was made in China, so I, I had to buy it. You take this tram up to the top of the mountain, and uh, you can see it just for miles everywhere. And, but people are taking, like, engagement photos and things up there as well. They have no idea what took place, uh, that the Klan was burning crosses up there, announcing to the world that uh, they were back with a vengeance. The Klan's power grew rapidly. At its height, one in five white eligible males was now in the Klan. In some regions, it was as high as 40%. They literally controlled elections in some states and would be the driving force behind many of the lynchings that, starting in the 1880s, had become a blood sport. Between 1880 and 1890, one person was lynched every other day in America. From 1880 to 1968, Roughly 4,700 people were lynched, one a week for 88 years. But these are only the ones we know about. So, so this was a picture taken last summer of my mother at uh, Waco, Texas in the area where Jesse Washington was lynched. Uh, Jesse was accused of raping a white woman, um, had a very speedy trial, and uh, was rushed out to this courtyard where 10,000 people were waiting, this mob scene. And so they, uh, they strung him, tied him up with a chain and flung that over the branch of a tree and, and would lower him and raise him over this fire, cooking him alive for like two or three hours. And it got to a point where clearly it was unbearable. And he uh, clung to the tree and tried to climb up it, right, to get away from the fire and stuff. And, and they chopped off his fingers. So he couldn't do that anymore. Um, they even let school kids, you know, during their lunch break, of course, uh, but come out and, and watch this guy be burned alive. Um, when it was done, they took his charred torso and dragged it around the square so everyone could see it. And they, um, people took pieces of his body, charred remains, as, as souvenirs. And, you know, just like with Leo Frank, they took photos, you know, as well, and turn them into postcards. So here's, here's one of them. And uh, here's another one. And Jesse Washington was, was 17. And... This says, this is the barbecue we had last night. Oh yeah, that was, that was, uh, 
I don't know the numbers, but that period, even leading up to 1950, was the lynchings in Mississippi were in the hundreds. And that's the ones we know about. Um, and, you know, you, you do enough of them that you don't have to do anymore unless it's just for fun because now everybody's terrified. Uh, but there were just, I, I don't know what the numbers. I don't want to quote a number I don't know, but I know there were hundreds of them. But even, even more than that, there was not only were there lynchings, but there were beatings. So you may be, they may pull somebody off the side of the road, you know, and it's one of those, who do you think you are, nigga kind of things. Person suffers a severe beating. Well, that doesn't count in the statistics. The person goes home and they're patched up in whatever way or they die. So they didn't call those lynchings. Uh, a lot of that went on. That even went on when I was growing up. I mean, you knew that, would ha you'd hear about it, you'd know that happened. Um, and what, you know, Emmett Till is the famous lynching that occurred. I was 11 years old. So this, it continued, and some of it just became vicious, and some of it was about, you know, teaching, you know, the niggas their place. You know, you don't come walking in here, you don't ask to vote, you don't ask to do. That's what it was about. So a lot of these, a lot of these lynchings were fueled by the, the pop culture of the time. Um, you'd see things like the, in 1915, the highest grossing film was Birth of a Nation, which was screened at the White House by Woodrow Wilson. I mean, that's a, that's a government endorsement. Right, um, you'd have postcards and things, uh, books. This, here's this postcard here: um, "Free lunch in the Everglades, Everglades, Florida." Right, and it's an alligator eating a black guy. They even had carnival games. There was uh, one that was called uh, "Hit the Nigger Baby," and the the object of the game was to get three chances to throw a baseball at a human being. You know, they would stick their head, the black person would stick their head through this hole and, you know, there'd be the scene painted on there on the canvas and you had three chances to, to knock them out. Um, now, this was allowed until 1940s. And if, you, and if you couldn't get to the carnival, don't worry, because they actually had a tabletop version, you know, that you could bring home and for hours of entertainment with the children. Lynchings were not isolated to the South, and neither were race riots. The summer of 1919 would become known as Red Summer, as a wave of terror swept across the country when three dozen cities erupted in violence. All were started by whites. In 1921, the eyes of the country would turn to the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, also known as the Black Wall Street, the wealthiest black community in America. Well, Tulsa, I certainly know a bunch about. I mean, I just, I didn't know that neighborhoods like that existed for black people. You know, here's a thriving, this is, the, this is the American dream. There are people, they're professionals, they're educated, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they, they run stores, a, a, certainly not a, 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 a dredge on any society. And they basically firebombed and beat up and burned out this entire community, killed, I think it was something like 300 people died, uh, purely because they were successful blacks purely because of that. Now, you almost never hear about that. You hear about watch riots, you hear about this riot, but this was just out and out, they're successful, we're not, let's kill them. Um, and all of those kinds of, of and they had, there was not, there was, there was actually a community like that in Mississippi. Uh, was it Itabina? I forget the name of the town. But same thing, where people set up it couldn't be a part of the larger America dream. So they set up and built. 
So this whole myth about they were all dumb and they were all this, I mean, that's just fed into shit. They were smart people who created successful businesses, which is supposed to be the American model. And they were killed. My mother would be the first to tell you that she still has racist tendencies, uh, which is shocking to a lot of people. Um, but she actually does something about it. When, when something comes to her mind, she, she thinks it through and she works it out. Why did that happen? You have to understand my mother you know, was, didn't know the N-word was a bad word until she was 13 years old. So, um, you know, there's that thing that's, I sometimes tell people that it's like, you know, hey, um, no one's born a racist, so don't worry. Society's gonna take care of it anyways. Um, I, I can tell you right now, you know, obviously, you know, we weren't raised to be racist in my, my mother's home. And yet uh, there would be these, these times, I, I still to this day, when I see black people riot, and I have to put that in quotes because not everything is, you know, black people rioting. Maybe they're just, you know, actually exercising their rights. Um, but that I have that instinctive reflex, that wall that goes up, and I have to constantly check myself. You know, it's, I have that sort of attitude that, well, there they go again, right? Um, but I'm willing to actually think about it. Now, uh, when I see white people riot, like the Pumpkin Fest in New Hampshire, you know, that famous one where a bunch of college guys, I guess, they ran out of pumpkins or something and got rowdy and flipped over cars and those sort of things. I mean, that was almost the boys being boys type of thing and just college students being college students, right? Um, it's amazing how it gets painted uh, differently from, you know, an African-American's protest or demonstrate or whatever. When, when, I, saw, when I saw what happened in uh, Ferguson... You know, after the people were rioting. And I, I said, it's fear. There's not, something else is going on. It's not about shooting this person. When they, the riots in Watts, the King, you know, riots, the, the, all of that, there's always something else going on. But the average person, certainly the average white person says, well, they just, they're destroying their neighborhood and they're just going crazy and that's what they do. Well, no, something made that happen. This was just the last thing that people were gonna put up with. And, but when they, but they don't think of what happened with the, with here in New York, when all the Irish attacked the black people, or when the thing happened in, 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 in Tulsa or other communities where white people ran amok. Why don't white people have the reputation of running amok? Because they've been doing it for years. You know, all the lynchings, and, and the attacking of predominantly minority communities and shooting people, that's running amok. One of the strategies used to confine blacks was the bombing of homes to send a clear message that they were not wanted in white neighborhoods. In Chicago, from 1917 to 1921, a bomb went off every 20 days for five years. This practice eventually fell out of favor and gave way to neighborhood improvement associations with restrictive covenants that were allowed until 1948. See, the argument that, that black people only want to be around other black people just isn't true. What was happening was that white people didn't want to be around black people. At least that's what the federal government was trying to reinforce. See, in, in the 1930s, when they created basically what we call mortgages today, they, they did it under what's called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC. 
And it came with a very controversial practice called redlining, which basically institutionalized housing discrimination on a national scale. Okay? And redlining was, was, a, was a rating system that used the color grading of neighborhoods based on, based on their quality. Right? The lowest quality neighborhoods were rated red and basically never got Hulk loans. And you can probably figure out by now you know, which neighborhood those were. And people will swear to you that didn't happen. You know, there was, well, there was redlining and then there was blockbusting. So if, if a particular real estate person wanted to get everybody to sell in the community, they'd move a, buy a house, move a black family in, and all the white people would run. Now, you have to ask yourself, well, why are you running? But they were so uh, trained to think that any black person comes in, well, now my community is going to be a slum and they're going to rape me and beat me up, so let me leave now. I'll sell for nothing. So that's what used to happen, and they would, they would, they would get out of the neighborhood. And I, I never understood it until I realized it's got to be all about race. Because if you can afford to buy the house in the community, you're going to take care of your house the same as they will. But they had been trained to say that if there's a black person in your neighborhood, they only live in ghettos. So they won't be happy until they turn your community into one. So people's mind would say, I better sell before they get too many of them. Not thinking if you don't sell, if nobody else sells, there's only one family. It's, 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 it's not, they don't think logically when they start thinking that way. But that was, those were tools to keep people out. Uh, they, have to, they have to live in this community. A lot of zoning laws are about that now. Prior to the 20th century, there wasn't anything that resembled a black ghetto. But by World War II, their foundations had been established in almost every northern city. In 1890, most black neighborhoods were less than 10% black. In short, a black neighborhood was 90% white. By 1930, things are very different. In Chicago, the portion of the black ghetto that is black goes from 8.1% to 70%. And 95% of all of Chicago's black residents now live in these black ghettos, while only 3% of Chicago's Irish population live in the Irish ghetto. And what's, what's interesting is that uh, most whites would tell you in this day and age that they are for integration, but as long as it's not in their neighborhood, right? Uh, there's a study that was done by the Washington Post that the uh, majority of whites were, you know, they was asked and the majority of whites said that they felt the ideal neighborhood was 80% white and 20% black. Whereas the majority of blacks felt that the ideal neighborhood was 50-50. Uh, when I was growing up, um, you know, we had a, a very, that's my, I forget what grade this is, but I just pull this out. Um, but when I was growing up, 1979, all right, so I was, uh, I don't know, born in 72, 79, seven years old, right, seven or eight years old. And this is Mrs. Strauss's class. And you can see we had a very diverse class. Um, there was the Southeast Asians that were coming in, and we had the African Americans there, and it was, it was nice, uh, you know. Um, but uh, my neighborhood didn't look like this. I think we had one black family I don't know if it was even a family. I know it was a black guy. And he was always out there washing his red Corvette. I thought that was the coolest thing down on 6th Street. Um, the Southeast Asians all lived in a place in these apartments down off Columbia Pike that we called Little Saigon. Now, I don't know what they called it, but that's what we called it. And probably not the nicest thing to call it, I guess. Uh, African-Americans lived in the valley. 
That's what it's called. I think it's Green Valley is what it's called, and everyone called it the Valley. So 1930s, 1940s, we see this continual discrimination taking place that further widens the gap between white and black America. And, and Roosevelt's uh, you know, New Deal was not a great deal for everyone. Because whether it was the right to form unions, um, regulated work hours, or uh, minimum wage laws, they always seemed to exclude those jobs, which just happened to be the ones that blacks were the majority of. And by the way, this also included Social Security, that when it was first implemented, did not apply to blacks at all. I think Social Security would, would have been neutral if black people could get jobs. <laughs> the tax was on labor, but they couldn't work. So, but... But when things really got bad, you know, they created, what is it, the WPA and all that stuff. Uh, I don't know how many black people that benefited, but I don't think it was a bunch. And that's just another way to keep things so that the right people don't, you know, the wrong people don't get mad. And whatever goes on in this country, there's a bunch of people that they don't want to lose control of and the ability to manipulate, and it's not black people, it's poor whites. Because they've convinced a bunch of, I, they did a study and they were talking to people about who's middle class. People making $20,000 a year were declaring themselves middle class. I don't know where they lived, but I don't know anywhere in the U.S. where $20,000 puts you in the middle class. So, but they keep convincing people. And as long as they can convince them that the immigrants, the black folks are your enemy, I'm not. I'm looking out for you. Then they don't have to do anything. Because these people up here don't fight. They have others. And you're right, that's what the, the army was about, the military, all of that. But they still made sure that on the return trip that the people that stayed in charge, the jailers remained poor and middle-class white people. An Ordinary Hero was my first award-winning documentary. It's about the life of my mother, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and her participation in the civil rights movement. For most of us, our mothers are heroes because they're mothers, and mom is just Mom, but when your mother's a civil rights icon, and yet you never really knew it, things change. Go check out An Ordinary Hero and find out how choosing to do what was right instead of what was easy helped change the world. You can find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. Segregation stretched into every corner of American society. This was true of the military as well. In 1939, of the roughly 190,000 soldiers serving in the army, only 3,600 were black. In the entire armed forces, roughly 335,000 troops, there were only five black officers. Three were chaplains. And Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, admitted that the military was requiring rigid literacy standards to keep down the number of colored troops. One of the funny things was is that what they realized was that the quickly realized was that the southern white males couldn't read either. And that, as a matter of fact, northern blacks had finished more schooling than southern whites. So uh, what the Selective Service did was just, you know, just do away with all this, you know, literacy nonsense and just uh, use the racial guidelines like those used by Nazi Germany. My mom learned that the war was over. Um, they were in Washington state still. Uh, and... She was in Nordstrom's eating mac and cheese, right? And, and here she is getting ready for this uh, parade taking place, and it's the soldiers marching down the, the streets, and, and it's a happy time. So as the war is coming to a close, what the, uh, the government's just figuring out is they need to help all these soldiers who are returning, you know, to find, you know, white soldiers. Uh, 
to, to, to finish their education, get good jobs, and uh, you know start a family, buy a home and stuff. So they create what's called the GI Bill. And really it was because they, they feared the social calamity that was going to follow what, with millions of people coming home without jobs, but now trained in the art of, art of killing each other. The GI Bill, they made sure that this was going to work for the benefit of white people. Because as soon as they said it will be administered by the states, anybody and their mother knew what was going to happen. That they were going to go to the favored people and you build the houses here. And they were allowed, even in New York, to build housing that black people could, did not have access to. And that was okay, because that's, that's what the state wanted to do with the money. So, you know, the big boys could say, well, we did what we had to do. Uh, and, you know, anybody that was a soldier benefits. Now, the education part, a lot of black people benefited from that. But then where are they going to go? That was a dead-end thing that they did because they didn't do anything about housing discrimination. In Mississippi, only two loans guaranteed by the GI Bill for homes, businesses, or farms went to blacks in 1947. The other 3,227, or 99.99938%, went to whites. In the suburbs of New York and New Jersey, of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill, 100 went to non-whites, a little more than one-tenth of one percent. And while this all happened 70 years ago, if you move forward to 1984, when many of the mortgages were maturing, the median net worth of white households was $100,000. For black households, it was 12000 In 2013, things are not much different. The net worth of whites is 13 times greater than blacks. Or, to put it another way, for every dollar a white person has in wealth, a black person has eight to 10 cents. And this is not about whites being smarter or blacks being lazier or whatever sort of, you know, off-base racial assumption one wants to make. It's about a foundation of racism to maintain the status quo. It's about a, a starting line set so far back by the policies of white supremacy that you can't even see it. And even if the economic discrimination faced by African-Americans ended today, and if they ended right now, it would still take several hundred years for blacks to catch up to whites. Now, when I first heard that, I was like, that doesn't make sense. But, but just think about it. Look at the GI Bill, it's one policy, and look at its impact after 70 years. Now multiply that by hundreds of policies over hundreds of years, it starts to add up. I think People don't understand when you say, uh, for instance, that you benefited from this being a racist society. I had a conversation with my wife. My father worked for what he had, and I worked for what I got. And I said, that's true. I said, but you had an opportunity to work for what you got and to work for what you have. And you had a lot of black people who were working their asses off and couldn't get a house or couldn't get this or couldn't get that. And they couldn't get it because they were black. Well, how did that benefit me? Because you, by denying them, you never had to compete with a whole bunch of people. Never had to compete. They weren't being educated. And I said, if you look at what black people have accomplished in this country, with all the stuff that has happened to us, that's frightening. That's frightening. I never really thought about how my grandparents benefited from uh, the GI Bill until I started thinking about my grandmother. Here was this lady who was, uh, I mean, you really think about it, she was 
born a sharecropper, cotton fields of Georgia, um, you know, dirt floor in a home, and yet would go on to become a millionaire in real estate, not because she was the right gender. You know, at that time, she wasn't, but she was definitely the right color. So when I was working on this film, we were going to go back to Georgia, and I asked my mom if she wanted to come along because I knew for the past couple of years that she had been wanting to see some of the old family sites one last time, type of thing. And, you know, she's 75 now, and, and uh, one of the places she wanted to get back to was uh, a little logging town, a former logging town called Oconee, Georgia, and uh, it's still as small as it was then, I'm sure, and. This is the place where my mom would go and visit her grandmother, Addie Chandler, when she was a little girl. Um, they'd just gotten indoor plumbing at that time. Now, indoor plumbing then meant that, you know, it was just a pipe back to some well or something like that. And you didn't drink the water because there would still be aquatic life that would come through when you turned on the tap. And this is, you know, how they lived. Uh, but my mom, uh, it's very significant in our in our lives because it's this turning point in the family's history. So um, on a dare, my my mom heads down this road with her friend and into the black quarters of Oconee, and, and my mom sees the realities of segregation and separate but equal, and she says, you know, this is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. It fascinated me that someone who seemingly had this life it was made, you know, you. You know, you're the Southern Belle, and, and uh, you know, you always think of them, well, they just kind of got it made. They kind of vapid, and they don't really know a whole hell of a lot, but, but you know, they got it made, and they're going to get the husband and do the whole thing. And here's a woman that said, you know what? Uh, I don't need all that. What I need to do is go fix something that I see is wrong. Um, and I am willing to risk um, whatever losses I take to do that and stand by that. And I think because of that attitude, by the way, I think that's why Jones was so embraced. There was nothing phony about it. It was like, you know, there was this stubborn, quiet person that said, this needs to change. My mother, and thousands like her, believed in the Constitution and the Declaration that all men and women are created equal. They exercised their rights to create change so that everyone could live in a true democracy and not one that was governed by one class or one group of people. But as the last vestiges of Jim Crow were being dismantled, a new structure was being built on the foundation of racism, the colorblind society. Racism without racism. So basically what happens is the system just constantly resets itself. It finds a, a new way to do the same old thing. And this is what leads to the colorblind society. When Wallace in 1958 loses to John Patterson for the governorship. Um, Wallace, uh, surprisingly, actually runs as a racial moderate. And John Patterson just plays up to everyone's racial fears. And so Wallace knew that if he was ever actually going to get elected, he was going to have to change his tune. And so he says, um, he says, I'll never be out niggered again. And he was right. He actually uh, won four more terms. And I think served until like 1980. Right? He also ran for president. and. In 68, he loses to Richard Nixon, but Nixon actually learns something from Wallace and implements what's called the Southern Strategy. And 
uh, Bush and Reagan would go on to, to, to use the same strategy, which is basically um, manipulate people's racial and, and economic fears and, and uh, bring them over into your party. And this was taking place um, as after Johnson gave African-Americans the right to vote in 65. And so all these Southern Democrats, you know, were getting swooped up by the Republican Party. I mean, it was no, it was no, it was no mere coincidence that, that uh, Reagan kicked off his general election campaign in Neshoba County, the very place where the three civil rights workers were killed 16 years earlier in 64. You know? Now, Reagan said he believed in state rights. When people caught him on, he said, well, that's not racist, but everyone knew what the hell he was talking about. Lee Atwater, who was the former chairman of the Republican National Committee and who served on Reagan's staff, confirmed this Southern strategy in 1981. And he said, and I quote, you can't run around saying nigger, nigger, nigger anymore, right? You have to say things like state rights and cut taxes, which meant your tax dollars won't be wasted on minorities, right? Now, Bush, Bush one, exemplified this strategy with his famous Willie Horton ad, which basically implied that if Dukakis won, that he would allow the, he would, he would release black prisoners and they would go on and rape your white women. Now, Bush was down 17 points before that ad was released. He won by eight. And nothing essentially has changed in that system, just hasn't. And we can applaud that a black person got elected, but we need to look at that a lot of folks think that was a big mistake, not because he was a liberal, but because he was black. Uh, and, but if you look at our educational system and all that stuff, nobody's gonna go anywhere. And to declare that it's that way because uh, that's just how things are, means you're not gonna face the issue of, well, why is it people of color that are there? Why is that? Why is that? Now, I will tell you, that one of the things that ought to happen in this country is that poor white people and black people ought to get together. But they have constructed over the years ways to keep that from happening. And the way to keep that from happening is to say, whoops, they're taking your White House, they're taking your jobs, they're doing this. So you're constantly fighting the person who's your natural ally. Because believe me, they're clear on who their allies are. They go to the same colleges, go to the same clubs, and then they kind of split up later on. I'm going to go south and you go to north. But the one thing we'll agree on is that they cannot take power in this country. So how do we do that? We keep them from voting. We don't educate them. They can't get the jobs. All of that still happens. And that's going to continue to happen until either there's actually a revolution in this country or there's something in people who claim to be people of good conscience actually get pissed off. So the political legacy of all this is actually very striking. You know, you have Wallace in, in 68 stretching all the way out to basically what Trump is, was doing in, in 2016, right? Um, you see someone like Strom Thurmond, who uh, was one of the signers of the Southern Manifesto in 56 and who ran for president in 1948 on a segregationist platform. Uh, then in 2001, I think it was, when Trent Lott the incoming Senate Majority Leader you know, from Mississippi, says that the country would have been better served if Thurman won. Now, of course, you know, 
When everyone called him on it, he backpedaled and said he just regretted that the way his words were interpreted. So this is why you have something like Georgia's two strikes, you're out rule. Michelle Alexander explained it best when she said that it was only invoked against 1% of white defendants facing a second drug conviction, but against 16% of African-American defendants. And so what ends up happening is, is that uh, those serving a life sentence under this provision, 98.4% are African-American. 98.4%. Now, if all you knew was the 98.4% and didn't know the why, what else could you possibly assume? I mean, understand, we've been conditioned to see things a certain way, to think a certain way. And that's why when we hear something that contradicts what we think we know, we put up these walls to protect ourselves so that we can live in the myth, because we like the myth. Right? We're safe in the myth. We're comfortable in the myth. There's no, you'd almost think there is no white crime. Yet there's more white people in jail than there are black people. But you would think, you don't, they don't talk about it. And then they'll say stupid stuff when they do talk about black. Well, you know, most of the black crime is against black people. Well, most of the white crime is against white people. Why don't we have that discussion? Well, because what they're really saying is we're afraid that the black people are going to do something to white people. So they don't even understand that in the same breath they're contradicting themselves. If it's against black people. See, when they say it's against black people, they're justifying police behavior in the black community. That's the only reason they ever make that statement. It's not that they're saying we're concerned about that. They're saying that's why the police do what they do. We don't understand why black people complain about the police because most crime on black people is against black people. So we need to be there and they should appreciate that no matter what we do. There's no reason to talk about white crime on white people because that's not what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the black people doing something to white people. So it's like they don't, there's no conversation going on. It's just a bunch of statements that make no sense. And yes, black people steal. Black people kill. Black people do drugs. But so do white people. And you try to have a conversation about white crime. I've tried. As soon as they make that statement about black crime and black people, I say, well, I'd rather talk about white crime on white people. Because I don't trust any of you people because you steal my money. Wall Street was about white people, not black people. Yet you trust them, you keep giving them your money. I said, so if you get mugged by a black guy, how come all black people got to pay for that? You suffer a lot more when they take your savings and you don't have any money to feed your children than you do if you get hit on the head and your watch gets stolen. And yet, while whites and blacks commit crimes at roughly the same rate, their arrest rates are very different. If you look at a population of 100,000 white males in America, 478 are in state or federal prison. For black males, that number jumps to 3,023. Today, we have more African Americans under the criminal justice system than were slaves in 1850. And that's the real crime. Want a great way to help a worthy organization and educate children about the civil rights movement? Visit our foundation, the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, at the jtmfoundation.org. That's the jtmfoundation.org. T-H-E foundation.org. We are a 501c3 established to help end racism through education, a 
$5 monthly recurring donation will provide curriculum for 30 students. As my mother used to say, I can't do everything, but I can do something, because doing nothing is not an option. If you have wanted to help in this cause, but didn't know how, now you can. The Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org. You know, it was unfortunate that when that was first introduced, there really was an issue with crack. <laughs> you know, and, and at the same time, by the way, that they went after crack, there's always a racist element to what goes on. They didn't go after the cocaine people. Now, on Wall Street, Wall Street, famous Wall Street, people used to deliver cocaine in briefcases. They would dress like the businessmen, and they would go. Now, if I know that, don't you think every cop knew that? I mean, that's what they, they'd go to the office and they'd have their briefcase and they'd deliver drugs. So when Nixon declares the war on drugs, there's not even a drug problem in the country. In fact, incarceration rates are in decline. Uh, it was even admitted recently that uh, the whole thing was all about going after the hippies and the civil rights movement people. Um, and in, in 1998, I think it was, uh, the CIA even admits that uh, they were allowing drugs to be sold in certain inner city neighborhoods to, uh, to help fund a covert operation taking place in Nicaragua. And so while Nancy was saying, say no to drugs, Ronnie was selling it on the street corner. When they started, now this was a federal program, right? War on Drugs was a federal program. And in order to do it, they had to enlist the aid of the local police departments. Same thing they're trying to do with the, the immigrants. So to do that, they said, you know, here's, here's some money, we'll give you money. And the more people you arrest, we'll give you more money. And to make it really nice for you, we're gonna give you some real cool weapons, right? So now you have local police departments walking around with Uzis and all kinds of whatever they carry, submachine guns and stuff, ready to kill people. That's the presence they are presenting to the community. And they start to make arrests. Well, arrests is the way you get promoted. Arrests gets more money into the department from the federal government, the boys upstairs like that, remember it's always toned at the top, boys upstairs like that, you have this impressive police department, they're making these drug arrests. Now nobody happens to notice that there's a lot of kids dying from drugs still, the drugs are still moving through the country, nothing has changed, and, but we now have the war on drugs. And no president has wanted to say, you know, this is stupid. So every one of them keeps signing it. And more arms keeps flowing into local communities. So you, you, you watch, and not just the Ferguson, but you, you see it on TV with Ferguson, and you watch the police show up. And what used to be like a vest and some wide, now they're coming up with camouflage. In the middle of a street, you got camouflage gear on, and you got guns hanging off, and you got anti-personnel things, and you got turrets in the ceiling. The hell is that? So what you end up seeing in this war on drugs is this explosion in... Um and arrests of African-Americans and Hispanics and such, and that uh, despite the fact that, that whites and blacks use drugs at roughly the same rate, 75% um, of all those who are imprisoned for drug offenses are either black or Hispanic. So the question is why? It's because you'll never see a SWAT team raid a university, but you'll always find them in the hood. And you see this sort of this sort of thing across the board, um, not just with drugs, 
Um, it's just the same thing over and over and over again. It's why the unemployment rate for African Americans is twice as high than that of whites. And Reagan's welfare queen makes us forget who the king is. Whites make up 42% of the poor, but take in 69% of the benefits. While blacks make up only 22% of the poor and take in 14% of the benefits. Everything is kind of rigged against uh, doing what I talk about doing, having dialogues and, and, uh, and admitting that things need to be changed and admitting that there's racism and admitting that there's class struggle in this country. Nobody wants to talk about that, but it's a, it's a fact. You know, and the wealthy continue to try to put themselves behind gates. Well, you're going to run out of gates. You know, me, I'd like to go have conversations with a lot of poor white people. Now, they, don't, they ain't ready for that, but I'd like to do that. To tell them, look, folks, uh, I'm not your enemy. Now, as soon as I do that, we have a history that says, if I were allowed to do that, I would be shot. Because every leader in this country who's ever done that, with any degree of success, has been shot. Whether it's Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, or doesn't matter. You get shot. Why? Because somebody has an interest in making sure that you don't stir people up. They don't learn that. So to borrow a little bit from Iris Marion Young's birdcage analogy, that if you only saw one wire at the cage, you would wonder why the, the bird did, just didn't fly away. But the further you step back, the more you see and the more you realize that the bird can't fly away. It's trapped and needs someone to set it free. And the truth sets you free. Uh, in 1963, this photo was taken. This is the Jackson Woolworth sit-in. It was taken by a guy named Fred Blackwell. Uh, it was John Salter, my mother, and Anna Moody. And when Fred walked into the Woolworths that day, he walked in as a segregationist. He was uh, you know, friends with many of the people in the crowd. Um, you know, we grew up with them, right? I think he dated one of the sisters, even. But uh, when he saw the ugly realities of segregation and Jim Crow exactly on these peaceful demonstrators, he said he could no longer be a segregationist. And he walked out that day believing in integration. For me, I can speak to it all mattering for me because I believe, I hope, I don't know that I believe, I'd like to create a better world. I'd like to create, uh, I've always worked to create an environment for my own child that is one where she can express herself in a positive way, in whatever way she chooses. And I would like not to have her race get in the way. Uh, I'd like to see that happen for all kids, white and black. Because what people miss is that a white child in this day and age who grows up in an all-white environment and only knows how to relate to other white people is screwed because the world doesn't look that way anymore. Dr. King once spoke of a dream where freedom would ring even from Stone Mountain and that the sons of slaves and the sons of slave owners would be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. Sometimes, you know, it's painful, but it's what's needed.
1991, my, my great aunt Icy passed away, followed by my grandfather in 96, Norman in 98, Uncle Oki and Aunt Reba in, in 99. With that, my, my grandmother was all alone. The last of her generation. She was uh, being held over at a hospital after some heart tests, and was going to be released the next the next day to a to a care center. And uh, my mother had called her to uh, let her know about the arrangements that a family friend was going to pick her up, and my mom would see her uh, that evening. My my grandmother just was incensed. It was it was not not proper. She raised her voice and said, Joni, I'm getting out of here. They've got me in a colored room. My mom said she was going to ask her what color was the room. Was it, was it blue or pink, purple? Instead, she just she bit her tongue and said, you know, Mother, people don't think that way anymore. I'll see you tomorrow. With that, my grandmother passed away. She was a, she was a wonderful grandmother. She was this you know, Georgia sharecropper who owned two houses on the beach, one in the mountains and her, her home on the lake. And uh, you know, she bought homes for her poor relatives and, and uh, drove a Cadillac. Right. Was, uh, and then when we turned 10 years old, she would, took us anywhere we wanted to go in the world. Wednesday night, Every Wednesday night, we'd go to McDonald's. That's back when it meant something, of course. And when it was time for all seven of her grandchildren to, to go to college, she paid for all of it. But she never told me who Aunt Mary was. Who was this, who was this one that stayed when everyone left? What was her, what was her hopes? What was her dreams? What was her name? This lady who's apparently such an important part of the family and, and yet no one could tell me anything about her. Digging up in your family history, it's uh, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't get to pick and choose. Your family history is not a buffet, right? You don't get to leave the lima beans and take the barbecue. It doesn't work that way. You, uh, you have to take it all. And it all, your family history sums up who you are, but doesn't necessarily define who you are. You, you get to choose that. My mother chose that uh, in 51. And I continue to try to choose that today. We, we never found Aunt Mary. The, uh, the grave sites we went to, you know, I, you would think that because she was considered family that we would, but she was never there. She would never have been buried with, with our family. But the, the myth you know, continued, even to the grave. Now, I'd seen this 1880 census before. 
over the years. I've seen him multiple times, but only for the, the first time recently. Because there beneath the names of my great, great, great grandparents, Walton and Clarissa Harris, is Mary. Her last name is listed as Harris. She was 69 years old, which means she was probably born in 1811. She's a servant, uh, single, no children, couldn't read or write. She was born in the very place that I was born, in Virginia, which is where her parents were born as well and where my family had helped create that foundation of racism. And as quickly as I could gather this information together, she was gone. I've never found, I've never found another mention of Mary Harris ever again. Long 
to stay here I ain't got long to stay here Thank you for listening to the film, The Uncomfortable Truth. There are more episodes to dive into with additional conversations on race and racism in America. Make sure you head to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Show a little love if you can and get access to even more content. Until next time, don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.